Um, for those of you who are um, visitors, I've been doing a mini-series. Um, there's been a number of, the, a number of the, the preachers in the church have been following a series on Philippians, but I really felt I wanted to do uh, a small a mini-series on Samson. And, um, and this is the fourth and the final one. Uh, and I, I've been looking really at um, Samson's life and his calling and relating it to our lives today. So in my first talk, I spoke about God knowing us before we were even conceived and calling us to a kingdom purpose, just as he did with Samson. In the second talk, I spoke about common sins that, that are common to man and, um, and um, you know, man in the general sense, man and woman, man, uh, and in the need to be accountable and in relationship with one another, because Samson was very much a loner and didn't really make himself accountable to anybody. And in the third talk, I, talk, I spoke about not taking revenge and not holding unforgiveness, uh, but leaving it to God to sort things out. Our attitude being, as in the Philippians reading, our attitude being that of Christ, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So making our attitude to be like Christ. And throughout all these talks, I've been emphasizing if you like, the sinful, reckless behavior of Samson, but showing how God remained faithful and still used Samson, despite his imperfections, just as he uses us, you and me, warts and all, today. And if you like, that's been the underlying thread of all of this, is how much God uses us and loves us, despite us, as we think. Um, as that song said, you're a good, good father, you're pleased. It says, uh, God is pleased with us. Um, so today I'm continuing in this theme, and I want to look at uh, a fair bit of um, Judges chapter 16. I'm going to cut out a bit in the middle just to sort of get, the, get it down a little bit in terms of time. Um, but we're going to look at how God remained faithful throughout Samson's life, right through to his death. So I'm just going to read a bit from Judges chapter 16. Okay. Um, so Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. The, I can't read that. Oh yeah. The Gazites were told Samson has come here and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will, give, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please, Tell me where your great strength 
lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And, and he gives a sort of three sort of cock and bull stories that, that are not true. And then eventually, um, if we move to verse uh, 18, when he's finally told her what, how he can be subdued, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. She said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands and the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man, who held him by the hand. Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Then his um, brother and all his family came down and took him and brought, uh, and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. It's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing is an amazing story um, about this, this person who 
we can only presume didn't look particularly physically strong. Otherwise, why would you ask where was the, the secret of his strength? I mean, if he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you wouldn't ask, would you? You'd know why he looked strong. But clearly, he didn't look strong. It was only when the Spirit of God came upon him that all of that strength came. And all of these amazing things that he did happened. And so firstly, in this, we see the amazing kindness of God in giving Samson strength through the Holy Spirit in order originally, when he was in, with the prostitute in Gaza, in order to escape their trap and carry the city gates some 30 miles or more to a hill overlooking Hebron in Israel. It wasn't just, he didn't just take it down and up a hill. He took it about 30-odd miles, these gates. You know, and this despite the fact that the reason he was in this predicament was because he'd been with a prostitute. Now, you know, you and I might think, well, you made your bed, you lie in it. I don't mean that as a pun, but um, that might be our kind of response. You know, you got yourself into this stupid predicament, Samson. You get yourself out of it. But God didn't do that. God graciously came and gave him strength that he could break free because God is merciful. You know, the mercy, the kindness, the grace of God, not counting our sins against us. That's what the Bible says. He doesn't count our sins against us. He didn't count Samson's sin against him, but still gave him the strength. You know, and what was the significance of the gates being carried 30 miles to a place where it overlooked Israel? Well, we're not told. And it might simply have been a bit of a case of showing off. You know, I'm, I'm not just strong enough to tear down your gates. I can carry them on a 30-mile hike. I don't know. You know, and if they're that far away, they're going to have a job getting them back anyway. But it may have been a sign to Israel. You know, the gates of a city were its security. At night, while the town slept, the walls and the gate ensured that robbers and bandits didn't come into the town and attack and steal. And it may be that Samson was saying to Israel, as he took the gates to a hill overlooking Israel, overlooking Hebron, to say, your enemies are unprotected. They're vulnerable. Their gates are down. You can take them. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Or another translation to that phrase is, And the gates of Hades will not prove stronger than it. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prove stronger than it. Now, I don't want to get into an investigation of what is meant by on this rock, because there was the discussion with Peter and things like that. That would be a, probably a preach in its own right. But I would like us to consider the fact of the gates of Hades not proving stronger than the church of God. The church of God is stronger than the gates of Hades. And just as the Spirit of God came upon Samson 
and gave him strength over the gates of the Philistine town of Gaza. So the Holy Spirit is upon us, not just on a one-off, not just in a one, one, one moment, but he is upon us. He is in us. He's, he's constantly filling us with the power of the Holy Spirit to give us strength over the gates of Hades, strength against the powers of the evil one and the hordes of hell. We have strength. We are not victims in this. We have strength. We have the strength of God. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the devil. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So we need to see in this picture of Samson and the gates of Gaza that God in us has given us the power to break open the gates of Hades and the power of the evil one and take ground for the Lord. Take ground for the Lord in lives that are ensnared by Satan. We, can, we have the power in God to take ground for the Lord. The second point I want to draw out from this chapter is the fact that God allowed Samson, having broken his Nazarite vow, to have his eyes taken from him. Remember, it was always his eyes that led him into trouble and sin. In chapter 14, it says, Samson saw a young Philistine woman. And he decided that he fancied so much that he had to marry her, even though it wasn't really a good marriage to get involved in. What he saw grabbed him so much that he had to marry her. And we know where that led. We know where that led. And again, in chapter 16, it says he saw a prostitute whom he went to. So he saw her, just had to go, just had to have her. His eyes kind of led him. He was led by his eyes. And, and it later says he fell in love with Delilah. And it's reasonable to suppose, isn't it, that he saw her first and desired her. He saw her. It was always his eyes that were getting him into problems. And it was his eyes that the Lord allowed to be taken from him. Job 31, verse 3, Job says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He also said in Matthew 18, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It's better to enter life with only one eye than to enter the fire of hell with two. Now, I don't think that Jesus is asking us to mutilate ourselves. That's not the point. I think the point is, Jesus is saying, what we allow in to our being through our eyes, what we look at, what we allow to captivate us by what we see is very serious. It's a serious matter. It affects us. That's what he's saying. He's not saying we should go and pull our eyes out. 
But he is saying it's a serious matter. I have made a covenant with my eyes, said Job. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look for certain things. I'm not going to look in certain ways. Men and women. Make your covenant with the Lord about what you look at. You know, the context was clearly to do with lustful desires in this case, but it can, I guess, apply to anything that takes your gaze off of Jesus. I didn't know that Rachel was going to be singing when I, uh, you know, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. That's our prayer. We want to see Jesus. We want our eyes and the eyes of our heart to be looking at Jesus and that that to be far more captivating than anything else that we can be looking at, anything else that we can see. We want our gaze to be on Jesus. So let's make a decision. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Let's make a decision to have nothing that dominates our vision except the Lord. The Lord Jesus dominates our vision. He is what we want to see. Not like Samson, who whatever he saw, he fancied and went off. Thirdly, it says that Samson was a Nazarite. And the conditions of the Nazarite vow are explained in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you ever want to go and look at them. It's quite interesting. Um, and in that, it gives kind of what happens if things go wrong. Because Nazarites, for one thing, weren't supposed to touch a dead body. Um, even if it was their own parents. They weren't to touch. during. If, if you made a vow to be, and you could do it for, for a period of time. So you could make a Nazarite vow for a year. You could say, right, for this year, I'm going to be giving myself completely to the Lord. I'm not going to have any alcohol. Oh, dear. Um, I'm not going to have any, any grain. I'm going to, I'm going to um, grow my hair. I'm not going to let a razor touch my hair. That was one of the principal signs of being a Nazarite, that you didn't allow your hair to be cut. And you gave yourself to the Lord, maybe for a period of time, maybe for a year. In, in, in um, Samson's case, he had a calling upon him to be Nazarite for life. His Nazarite vow was for the whole of his life. Um, although he didn't keep it very well, but his vow was made by God for him for the whole of his life. But, but anybody could make a Nazarite vow, and they could, they could take a year. And it says if something happened where you accidentally, so someone dropped dead in your presence, and you were then defiled by this death, you then had to shave your head, make an offering to the Lord. I think you set fire to the hair that you'd grown as part of the offering, and then let your hair grow again and start the vow again. And if it was a year, you know, suppose it's sort of after 11 months, someone drops dead. Well, you've got to start the vow again for another year because you've got to fulfill a year. That was how it worked. And, and here we have Samson who, well, we know he touched the carcass of a dead lion right at the very beginning because that's where he got the, the honey from, but he didn't seem to worry about that too much. But now the sign of his Nazarite vow had been taken from him. He'd had his hair shaved, okay? And maybe that's what's happening here. It's a bit like that, having to start the vow again by letting your hair grow again. And this is perhaps one of the most profound but sentences in the Bible. We did a, we did a series um, earlier on in the year 
what we called it but God. And we were looking at the minor prophets and, and how, you know, there was, the, in a nutshell, with the minor prophets, it was all doom and gloom and you're all horrible, but God is going to forgive you, but God is going to make you great, but God is going to cleanse you, but God is going to show grace and mercy to you. It was the theme of these song, uh, of these, uh, of these preachers was but God, because there's always a but God. And here is the but in this one, but his hair began to grow again. You know, I can almost feel goosebumps when I, when I say that, but his hair began to grow again. I once heard David Pawson, who is a renowned Bible teacher, in, in, I think he might, be, he might have passed away now, I don't know, but he might still be alive, I don't know, but I would imagine. Um, but he was a very renowned Bible teacher, and um, I, I heard him once in the, in the 80s preach a whole sermon based on this short phrase, but his hair began to grow again. And this was in the 80s when the Holy Spirit was being rediscovered by churches and networks like New Frontiers and Commission, others like them were being formed. And David's Paul, David Pawson's message was that the church's hair was growing again. Strength was returning. The Holy Spirit was bringing his presence again. So for me, this phrase it's like lobbing a spiritual grenade into the mix. What's God doing? His hair began to grow again. I believe that the hair of this church is beginning to grow again. The Holy Spirit is again at work amongst us. He's calling this one. He's calling that one. He's bringing people together. The, the hair of this church, I believe, is beginning to grow again. Okay. Fourthly, Samson's defeat and ridicule was not only a, a disaster for him personally, but as we see, it was an occasion for the Philistines to ridicule Samson's God. They offered a great sacrifice to Dagon. Sounds like a soap powder, doesn't it? They offered a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. Now, this is the same Dagon who, a little later on in 1 Samuel 5, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple. And when they woke up the next morning, nobody would have been in the temple, it was deserted. Dagon's image was face down on the ground. And so they set it up again. And the next morning when they went in, not only was it face down on the ground, but its hands and its head had been cut off. It's not a good idea to ridicule God. But sin can often do that, you know. It can bring ridicule to God in the eyes of non-believers. That's one reason why it isn't good to sin. Even though there's forgiveness and grace and, and our ultimate salvation doesn't, doesn't depend on our sin, it depends on God's mercy and grace. But the thing is, when we sin, the world speaks ill of God 
on account of us. When, when sometimes, you know, when you get these high-profile tele-evangelists in the States and, and, they, and they, they fall, and then people kind of write God off. Oh, you know, you can't believe in God. Look what, and, and people make a judgment about God based on us and the way that they see imperfections in us. You know, well, that God can't be very good. Look at them. God is judged instead of us. Now, of course, actually... That's what the gospel's about, I suppose, at the end of the day. God being judged instead of us. That's what Jesus came to do. So in one sense, without realizing it perhaps, they are actually enacting the power of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus was judged in our place on the cross. We deserve the judgment. He took it upon himself. But if we can try to walk in a way that honours God and doesn't bring ridicule to God as Samson did. And finally, even in the end, we see, we continue to see the two sides of Samson. We see faith, but also we see his very vengefulness, his very vengeful nature. Let me just, let me just read to you again. I don't know if you picked it up at the time, but um, he said, this was his prayer. O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, it would be nice, really, wouldn't it, if, if he wanted to be avenged for the way that God's name had been profaned by, by the Philistines. It would be nice if, um, you know, if he wanted to... Um, show that actually the God of Israel was far, far stronger than Dagon. And that doesn't seem to be his motivation. His motivation seems to be, I want to get my own back from him taking my eyes from me. So even, even, even in his sacrifice, even I'm, I'm, let me die with the Philistines, and, and even in the fact that he, met, he killed more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life, and... Uh, you know, and that was his calling. His calling was to begin the deliverance of the, of the Israelites from the Philistines. That was what he'd been called to do. And he did it in a much bigger measure in his death. But even then, his motives were quite mixed. We're told in that for the first time that Samson prayed to God. Maybe it did happen before, but we're not told it. There was never any mention of it. It's the first mention of Samson praying. And Samson was prepared to lose his own life in order to win a victory. Greater love, it says, has no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. Laying down your life is a great sense of love. And, uh, and maybe there was a love of God in that. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and repeated it again in Matthew 16, if anyone seeks to gain his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I guess there's a good picture of that, really, in Samson. Finally allowing himself to be, you know, killed, to die with the Philistines, but to, to fulfill the calling upon him. But as I say, even in this sacrifice, there's still an element of revenge for his own injury rather than a desire to restore honor to God. 
And we still see in all of this the kindness and the faithfulness of God. This is the real story of Samson. You know, on one level, we see a story of a man who did remarkable things, who had remarkable power when the Holy Spirit came upon him. You know, he could, he could demolish a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. He could go out and just, you know, break the necks of, a, of, three, of 30 Philistines and grab their clothes because, you know, he, he had a wager that he had to fulfill. Um, he could round up 300 jackals and put torches on their tails and set them out over the fields and set light to all of the fields. All sorts of things, all sorts of strength. Despite all of his flaws. And he is counted amongst those who live by faith in, in the Hebrews 11 list. Despite all of his flaws, despite all of his sinfulness. But the true, real story is the understated but underlying story, the mercy, the faithfulness, and the kindness of God, who honors his covenant with us, even when we don't honor it, even when we break the covenant, even when we do things that we know we shouldn't do, he remains faithful, he remains kind, he remains loving, he remains forgiving. You know, my desire throughout this series on Samson has been to show that even sinful men and women like you and me can be used by God. In fact, remember, God does not see us as sinful. We do. We know what we're like. We know the thoughts that go on in our minds. We know the desires that go on in our hearts. We know the actions that we take. But as far as God is concerned, we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We've been forgiven. We're righteous. Jesus says we're righteous. We didn't earn it. One day we will be before the Father in heaven. And all we can say is, Father, I believed in your Son for my salvation. And he will accept us on that basis. Never disqualify yourself. You know, few of us, I think, will feel that we're as bad as Samson. You know, the stupid things that Samson did, the things that were clearly obviously wrong. You know. Few of us will feel that we're as bad as Samson. Though, of course, to be honest, actually, this is, this is of itself, is immature thinking, because at the end of the day, sin is sin, and there aren't levels of sin. You know, I may not be doing the sins of Samson, but sin is still sin, makes no difference. But maybe you will be encouraged, actually. Humanly, you will feel encouraged that if God can use Samson, then he can certainly use you and me. Because ultimately, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The whole thing, from start to finish, our salvation, the work that we do, the good, the good works that God has prepared for us to do, it's all about Jesus. It's not about 
us reaching a standard. It's all about Jesus. He is faithful even when we are not. Now, that doesn't mean don't try to be, but know that when you, when you fail, Jesus still loves you. Jesus is still for you. Jesus has still got plans for you and will work them through. As we see in the story of Samson. I'm just going to finish with, with uh, this. This is, um, this is from Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's from the 1800s. So, and he's probably one of the most famous preachers of the 1800s. And uh, he writes this about Samson. He says, the Old Testament biographies were never written for our imitation, but they were written for our instruction. Okay, so what he's saying is, it's not about us trying to imitate the people that we see in the Old Testament. It is about us learning from them. Upon this one matter, what a volume of force there is in such lessons. See, says God, see what faith can do. Here is a man full of infirmities, a sorry fool. Yet through his childlike faith, he lives. The just or the, the righteous shall live by faith, it says in the scripture. The just shall live by faith. He has many sad flaws and failings, but his heart is right towards God. He does trust in the Lord, and he does give himself up as a man consecrated to his Lord's service. And therefore, he is saved. And he finishes with this. I look upon Samson's case as a great wonder put in Scripture for the encouragement of great sinners. I look upon Samson's case as a great wonder put in Scripture for the encouragement of great sinners. And that's been my, as I've been reading this, and I hope it's affected you, I just think, God, if you can use Samson, warts and all, you can use me. It's so easy to disqualify yourself. It's so easy to think, I'm not good enough for God. God would never use me. I know all the things that go on in my mind. I know all the things that go on in my heart. You can't possibly use me. Well, you Samson. I'll use you. I'll use you. God will use you. Be encouraged that God does use you. If the musicians want to come up, finish with a, a song of response of worship to God, knowing that God loves us. Knowing that God is for us, he doesn't hold our sins against us, but he delights in us. <clears throat> but you tell me that you're pleased and I'm never alone, is what we sang earlier. Let's just pray before Rachel comes to.